Valenza is, he's perhaps the best natural politician I've ever met. He could walk into any room, even people who don't speak Polish, and somehow figure out how to get their attention and uh, get them to, you know, to listen, to watch him. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Richard Hornick was the Warsaw Bureau Chief for Time magazine from 1980 to 1981. He carried out numerous interviews with Solidarity Free Trade Union leader Lech Walesa, including his last interview before martial law was declared in 1981. Richard shares the stories of 1980s Poland, as well as the interviews he carried out with the Solidarity leadership and the leaders of Communist Poland. Now, if you're enjoying the show, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. By telling your friends, you can really help the podcast grow. Now, for three US dollars per month and larger amounts of welcome too, you can get the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter of the podcast. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Thank you so much to our 89 generous supporters who help keep the podcast available for you all to listen to. In today's episode, Richard and I talk about his interview with General Yaruzelski and his meeting with Father Jerzy Popielescu, as well as his challenges with the SB Polish Secret Service. We welcome Richard to our Cold War conversation. Time magazine had a Vienna bureau of a dozen people. Uh, of course, Life magazine was still around then as well, but they had uh, cars and drivers and photographers. Uh, it was a big deal. And, of course, that all culminated in 68 with the, uh, the Czech uprising and um, the Prague Spring. Mm-hmm. And, um, but after that, um, aside from a few uh, hiccups in Poland and a couple of other places, Eastern Europe really fell off the map. Um, and so for, I'd say between 1970 and 1980, time probably had seven or eight Eastern Europe bureau chiefs, um, because people would go there for, you know, be there for a year or so and realize that they were never getting in the magazine. And so they would uh, agitate to get out. And, and so I wanted to stop being the low man on the totem pole in Washington covering business. Um, and I knew that Eastern Europe was coming up. Um, and this was in July of 1980. And so I put up my hand to go and nobody else wanted the job. And then a month later, this electrician, Lech Valenza, climbed over the fence. And all of a sudden, lots of people at time wanted to be Eastern Europe bureau chief, but they had already announced that I was going. And so once again, this good fortune. Um, I'd call it impeccable timing, Richard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, it's, you know, no, absolutely. I know a lot of colleagues who were, you know, as talented or more talented than I was, who never, um, never had that uh, opportunity, who never, you know, that the big story never, never, you know, 
came their way. Um, and anyway, so yeah, it was, it was a pretty remarkable uh, turn of events. So when, when did you arrive in Poland? I arrived on um, early January of uh, 1981 and was, was trying to, uh, yeah, I missed the, all the August stuff that was still covered by my predecessor, a uh, guy by the name of Barry Kalb, who was based out of Berlin. Um, and um, by, by the time I got there, it was um, the, uh, the, the sort of window to get accreditation was closing. Um, and cause I was actually hoping to move there with my, my wife. Um, and, uh, as it turned out, um, well, uh, the first thing that happened to me was I was expelled. Um, I was there for about a week and, um, I never really found out what happened, but I was there with my predecessor and I don't think they liked him very much. And so about a week into this, uh, my first, uh, reporting trip there um we were in our the victoria continental hotel intercontinental hotel on victoria square and um uh, it was a knock at the door and it was the uh who actually were in the telex room and it was the manager of the hotel telling us that there were uh, two police out there uh, looking for us and we were taken to a police station and with them told to bring our passports and after an hour or so, our, our passports, our visas were stamped a null Havana, uh, and the visas were annulled. And um, we were given 24 hours to get out. Um, I was allowed to leave without incident. My colleague, uh, we were flying on the same flight. He was uh, held and searched um, for quite a while uh, before uh they they let him go just just as the plane doors were closing for the flight to uh, to Frankfurt. So um, wow. not a, it wasn't very uh, a very uh, promising start to my career in uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, so for the next three months, I covered did what I could from Berlin. We had uh, a couple of stringers, uh, Polish and and uh, Western, in uh, in Warsaw. Um, we had experts on the outside. We had people um, like at Radio Free Europe who who were uh, monitoring uh, Polish radio broadcasts and, and that sort of thing. I read the the FBIS. Uh, what what's the FBIS? So BBC and the like U.S. Commerce Department had a joint venture in uh, monitoring uh, Western uh, Eastern uh, media. Had big antennas all over, uh, you know, Germany and um, yeah, I think mostly Germany, uh, and uh, but also for China. I mean, this was done all over the world, and they uh, recorded every major broadcast possible, and uh, some were uh, translated. So uh, I think it's the Foreign Broadcast Information Service. Um, Okay, so this was like a digest of well, yeah, the news yeah. that was... But it was, it was more than a digest was, because they were actual full... Um, they, didn't, uh, they didn't edit it very much. It was just these were transcripts of, of things. Anyway, so, you know, it was the usual, you know, the old-fashioned, uh, you know, Kremlinology over the, over the horizon thing. Um, anyway, after about uh, three months, uh, we wound up... Uh, 
my wife and I wound up going back to Vienna because that's where we knew. Um, so we moved into an apartment there and then I, um, would uh, try to travel and I traveled around the region covering you know, whatever was happening. For instance, uh, Kosovo blew up, uh, at that point. Um, then Pristina, uh, there were, uh, anti, uh, government riots. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I, and then I covered Poland as, as best I could. Uh, and then starting in April, uh, or late March, um, I was uh, given, you know, uh, one or two week visas to Poland every couple of weeks. Um, and that went on until, uh, the end of, uh, end of the year when, um, and beginning of November, uh, the foreign ministry issued me uh, a permanent, uh, uh accreditation or for you know to actually move to to warsaw okay just let me ask you i just want to ask you about when you're on these short-term visas what you know who were you speaking to in poland because at, at that time solidarity was still authorized so um presumably you were you were getting interviews from their senior people oh yeah i mean that that was and and senior government people as well. Um, it was not that difficult to um, to find people uh, to talk to. It was really difficult to figure out, um, actually, in some ways, uh, what the heck was going on because so many of the, um, the, the the versions of, of from you know, from what people were saying uh, conflicted with each other. Uh, you know, solidarity was not all that solid. Uh, it had lots of factions. Um, and, um, and, and even within the, the government, there were, you know, and, and the party, there were, there were factions. So, um, again, it was sort of a triangle, triangular triangulation of, of information and, you know, be honest, uh, most of the, uh, most of what people did between, I'd say, you know, August of 1980 and December of 1981, well, a lot of it was just um, straight news reporting. This happened, um, you know, because everything else was speculation. Um, and it's, you know, that's a, you're supposed to, you know, connect dots and everything, but um, it's very easy to, uh, to get fooled. Um, by um, whatever the the uh, the main theme of the day is, or what everybody is saying, um, so I I tried very hard to keep my reporting as fact based um, as possible. Right, um, right. And d- did you interview um, Valenza? Uh, several times. Uh, of course, he um, he doesn't speak. English and I don't speak Polish, but I had a I had a spectacular um, young man as my translator. Uh, he actually went on to become uh, ABC News, American ABC News's uh, Moscow bureau chief in the nineties. Um, and uh, he was, aside from being brilliant, he had he spoke uh, perfect idiomatic English, but he was one of those people who could finish a sentence uh, before you finished it. 
Um, and he could do that from Polish to English and English to Polish. So it was like having a simultaneous translator. Um, and of course we taped everything. So it was possible to go back over it and, and make sure we had things right. But it, so, so yes, I, I talked to Valenza, um, probably a half a dozen times. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, not, not very, uh, rewarding. Uh, my editors were happy, but, you know, Valenza is, um, He's perhaps the best natural politician I've ever met. Um, he could walk into any room, uh, even people who don't speak Polish, and somehow figure out how to get their attention and uh, get them to, you know, to listen to watch him. Um, but he's not an intellectual. Um, he never read a book and was proud of it. Um, and so, it, you know, the, the interviews were... Um, you know, like I say, good for a nice headline or a, you know, a poll quote or something like that, but um, not a lot of uh, light shed. And and he was, uh, but you know, this is especially starting uh, in the summer of of eighty uh, one, around the time of the solidarity uh, solidarity's first uh, national convention up in uh, Gdynia. Um, he. Uh, the place, the, the whole solidarity was just coming apart. Um, there were, we think, agent provocateurs, uh, you know, sort of starting job actions around the country. He was always on the road, always trying to put out one fire. He was trying to prove that solidarity could be a responsible partner. You know, the economy was, was absolutely collapsing. Um, the, 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 the windows of, of stores would have uh, food stores would have pyramids of empty tea boxes um, in them. Um, there was literally nothing to buy. Um, everything was done through rationing. Um, there was, uh, you know, the, the place was, was chaos. There was, there were fears that there would, wouldn't be enough coal for the winter. Um, and so uh, he was just, uh, you know, scrambling all the time. Uh, so, but the last interview I had with him before martial law was actually about a week before martial law because, uh, time magazine had, um, had decided to make him man of the year. Um, and as such, um, you know, I had a, a lot of access to him and I had about an hour and a half, uh, two hour interview with him, um, a week before he was arrested. And, uh, December 13th or yeah, probably actually, I think he was, yeah, December 13th. Um, and so, um, and again, it was a, a, a real mishmash of, 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 uh, of quotes, but, um, you know, it was, a, yeah, we got two pages out of it and <laughs> it, it, um, you know, we, it was, a because martial law was declared <coughs> the week before, uh, the man of the year cover came out. The man of the year cover had, uh, you know, probably eight, eight stories about Poland and six of them were mine, including this interview, which turned out to be the last interview he gave to anybody, uh, before, before his arrest. So again, impeccable timing as you, as you would say. Wow. I should ask you for the lottery numbers, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I never win. <laughs> Door prizes or anything else. So, uh. <laughs> um, 
did, did you get any impression that he he had a plan as to where this was this was going to go with solidarity? No, actually, that was in, in many ways the the heart of the interview because I kept trying to get him to explain to me what his vision for Poland was, and it was always just um, a negative, not what the communists are doing. And in fact, the the most interesting quote I ever got from him. Um, and, you know, maybe anybody ever got from him was, you know, after about 20 minutes of going back and forth on this, he finally said, look, you know, you can't expect us to have the proper language. We've spent 40 years in a bad school. All we know is what the communists taught us. And so we have to invent something new uh, ourselves. Um so, no, I mean, he was, like I say, he was a very instinctual uh, politician. After this was, after I, after I, I got out, um, I left Poland about a week after martial law was declared. It was Christmas. Um, I left on Christmas Eve um, and then went back two days later because I wanted to get back in before the, before the, the magazine came out because I had been threatened by the government that if we put once on the cover, it would be, you know, the end of my, my visa. So anyway, I wanted to get back in at least and have them expel me. Um, I had to leave by the way, because, um, they had shut down everything. They had literally pulled the plug on the central telephone and telex switching, uh, stations. Um, and so there was no communication outside uh, to the outside world, and the only internal communication were military uh, lines. Um, but anyway, so I, I and I did get back in, um, and they didn't expel me. Um, but there was, you know, complete censorship. I just want to go back to some of the people you interviewed, if that's okay. Sure. Did you? I mean, you you mentioned, you know, the the factionalization of of solidarity and. You know, I, I mm-hmm. agree with you that it was far from um, what the name implied. But um, obviously, one of the the faction leaders was um, Jacek Kuron, mm-hmm. I think, the head of the Workers' Defense um, yeah. Organization. Mm-hmm. Did you interview uh-huh. him? Yeah. Um, you know, actually, they, the, you know, the brain trust around uh, Volensa, Kuron, uh, Onishkevich, um, Garemek, uh, um, uh, Buyak, um, they weren't, um, they were all pretty much, uh, on the same page in, in 1981. The real problem were the, the regional, um, uh, leaders, um, and, you know, the, the people who ran the solidarity chapters at Orsus, uh, the tractor factory, or, you know, they, they were the more, um, radical ones. Um, so yeah, no, they, you know, they were all pretty, um, hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia and I support cold war conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the cold war, um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, 
As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. They're fairly fairly much on the same page. Uh, the tac- tactical things, but... We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Steve Windus, host of Batting the Breeze, the podcast for the infinitely curious. I've met people from all around the world with incredible stories to tell. Alistair reveals what it's like to breathe through someone else's lungs. Edward shares some hilarious stories about running for Parliament. And what did happen to Winston Churchill's budgie? We always try to be a little bit informative, amusing, thought-provoking... And above all, leave a smile on your face. So why not join me each week batting the breeze? Subscribe right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. But as far as vision, did they have any more or give any indication of any more vision beyond what Valencia had? Um, well, uh, yeah, and that, and you're right there. There were you know divisions in that you know some wanted uh, more of a you know, a more market uh, oriented approach. Some were looking to um, a kind of uh, humane you know communism with a human face sort of thing. Again, you know, to Valencia's point, um, none of them had really been that exposed to anything except what they they knew, um, and you know they confronted a very very difficult situation their constituents wanted the the workers they wanted uh low you know low prices and high wages and there's simply no way to to square that circle and um so that's why there were just constant problems there were food shortages and people weren't getting paid and you know what are you going to do about it and so it it uh it, it was it was uh, uh, pretty hopeless uh, uh, from the beginning. The idea on the government side was, uh, and it's never possible to know if this is where they were sincere, but um, was that they needed to make serious changes in the way the economy was organized. They needed to raise prices. They needed to, you know, let the market. Uh, work it's uh, it's it's uh, magic uh, in allocating resources and they needed more productivity out of the workers and they wanted solidarity the government wanted solidarity to provide the cover for that and so and solidarity said okay possibly but in return then then we want to have a greater voice in in how the country is run and that was the the big sticking point and so, um, you know, there was this throughout Eastern Europe, there was a, a social compact, which is we will provide you with a job and a place to live and some food and medical care. And um, and in return, you uh, you keep your mouth shut and uh, don't uh, you know try to get involved in politics. And you know, that is what had broken down in Poland and was breaking down elsewhere. And then if, you know, to fast forward yeah. in ni- to 1989, 
you know, the roundtable discussion that was still the, the issue on the table. Um, and that's, you know, when the whole world changed. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. It, who did you speak to in the in the po- in the Polish government? Oh, well, there was, you know, there are the, the people we'd call the uh, the exit uh, export poles. Uh, Mieczysław uh, Rakowski was, you know, the main kind of conduit. Uh, there was a guy by the name of uh, Gornitsky. Um, I actually did uh, meet and interview uh, Jaroszelski, uh, Jerzy Orban. Um, you know the the, the usual uh, the usual suspects, and then uh, from time to time, I, I would uncover you know, other interesting people. So, because of my academic background, I I studied uh, not just Marx and Engels, but Hegel as well, um, and then spent you know the next thirty years of my career going to communist countries where no one had read Marx, much less you know Hegel. Um, because all they were allowed to read was Stalin's uh, short history of the Bolshevik revolution. Um, anyway, so I, I found a guy uh, or my, my, uh, my interpreter uh, found a guy who was the head of the ideology department of the central committee of the Polish United Workers Party, which is, is their communist party. And I used to go over to his office and we, we, you know, he actually had read all these things that I'd read and we could, you know, have an interesting conversation about, you know, how this w- would have fit with the Marx's view of, of, or even Lenin's view of the world. Um, so, um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, my economics background, even though I don't have a, an economics degree, um, <laughs> I always found one of the easiest or most direct ways of, of finding out about a country or a place was to look at its economy. And so, and, and most communist governments don't, you know, they're happy to have you do that. So I went to a lot of factories. I went to, I talked to people. I knew all of the people in Bankan Lovi, the, their foreign trade bank that was from the old days when I, from, from when I was covering Comic-Con. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I had a, a sort of granular, uh, more granular economic view, um, and I, I, I wrote, I, I wrote quite a few stories based on those things because, you know, I, I do think that sometimes the kind of slice of life um, stories are the are the best way to to learn about, you know, for outsiders to learn about a place. And you know, Jim Fallows, when he was he's an American journalist, works for the Atlantic. Uh, when he was in Japan in the late 80s, he wrote some of the most amazing uh, slice of life stories that really gave you a sense for of what was going on there. Um, so so, I, so I, I tried to f- uh, focus on those sorts of things. And then after martial law was declared, there was, you know, we were pretty much cut off. Um, there were very few people you could get access to. Um, there was we were in full censorship for three months. Um, we uh, did well. Uh, we did the usual you know, tricks of smuggling out our stories with you know uh, pigeons. You know, people go out to the airport and you know, hand a couple of pages to somebody and tell them there'll be someone with a sign from Time Magazine meeting them at the uh, air- airport on the other side. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned interviewing mm-hmm. Yaroszelski. Um, what was that like? Uh, it was uh, strange. Um, 
he's very, you know, very um, stoic figure, I guess. Uh, very uh, rigid. Um, not a surprise that he's, you know, military. Um, but, you know, one of the things that you know, my abiding um, sense of the place was that, yeah, there were careerists uh, there, especially people like uh, uh, Rakowski or an Orban or whatever. But a lot of the people on the other side genuinely wanted a better Poland. You know, they just had a different idea of how to get there. Um, and, um, you know, I don't think we'll ever know for sure if the declaration of martial law was, in fact, um, as he claimed, necessary to prevent chaos, which would have led to a Soviet invasion. I know there's recent documentation that that, uh, that indicates that that Brezhnev were, it was not, um, you know, that that wasn't in the cards. But um, anyway, um, no, he was very, uh, a very obviously intelligent um, and a, a, a decent uh, interlocutor. Um, and you know, uh, trying to make uh, you know, trying to make his case. Yeah, he's he's an interesting character because the you know his eyesight was damaged from him being a in a Soviet right. labor camp at one point, which is why he always wore those those dark glasses. Yeah. Yeah, they call him um, Pinochet in in Poland. Pinochet. Pinochet. Yeah, Pinochet. Whatever. Um, yeah, that was the joke. I mean, the best part, and I've left this out, but the, you know, the best part of the probably, you know, six years I spent all told, um, in communist, you know, Eastern in, in, in the Soviet bloc were the jokes. You, know, you could do a whole separate conversation on, on, on jokes. Um, it's how people kept their sanity. Um, and I used to collect them, especially back in the, you know, when I was doing my, the business reporting, because how do you get somebody, a Western businessman who's trying to do deals in the Soviet Union to talk to you? You got to have small talk. So, you know, I would trade in, you know, the latest jokes and everybody you know, loved those. So um, anyway, um, yeah. So, yes, he was an interesting character. Um, and, um, you know, it's, who knows what would have happened um, if he hadn't de- you know, declared martial law. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. There's, there's, well, there, there were two schools of thought, but as you say, mm-hmm. there's more recent documentation uncovered that Brezhnev really thought that he'd probably make it worse by sending mm-hmm. in Soviet tanks. Of 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 the jokes that you uh, collected, have you got a couple of favourites? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you my the one that you know. As I said, going to Moscow was always um, a, a, a grim exercise for me. And uh, I flew always on Austrian Airlines. We had these little DC-9s. And I would be at Cheremetyevo after a week in, in Moscow with my nose pressed up against the window waiting to see that red livery plane land because then I knew I would be leaving. And um, at the time, there was a joke about the, uh, the commissar in the Kremlin who gets up one morning and it's a beautiful day and he looks out his Eastern window and he sees the sun rising and he, he feels moved and he goes and he says, uh, comrade son, it's so, so great to have you rising over the, the glorious fatherland today. I, I hope you bring peace and prosperity to, to our people. 
and the son surprisingly responds, well, comrade, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm happy and proud to be bringing warmth and, and light to your, to the glorious fatherland. And the day goes on, the commissar forgets about, you know, what he said, but then he sees a beautiful sunset out his Western window and he goes to the window and says, comrade son, I, I, I have to thank you for bringing, you know, light and, and warmth to, to the glorious fatherland today. And the son said, uh, Commissar, fuck you, I'm in the West now. Now, I have heard almost the same joke regards Eric Honecker. Uh-huh. Yeah. As, as well with the son, you know, the other side yeah. of the wall. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting to hear its genesis, possibly. Possibly, although you never know. Uh, but yeah, yeah, there. I mean, there are all sorts. You know, there are ones about shortages. Uh, so my favorite, um, my favorite economic one was uh, a a commissar is uh, an agitprop commissar is somewhere in the Ukraine, and his job is to try to explain the different stages of communism. You know, of economic development. There's feudalism and capitalism, and then there's you know the period of building socialism, and then there's you know. Uh, socialism and building camp. And so he goes through this and one of the peasants, you know, raises his hand and says, well, I'm sorry, uh, you know, could you, you know, explain that? He said, all right. So if, in feudalism, you had no shoes. And uh, capitalism, maybe you had shoes, you know, in, in building socialism, um, you know, perhaps you had a bicycle um, in, in socialism, you know, now people have, have cars. And when we reach, the final stage of communism, everyone will have their own uh, uh, airplane. And the peasant is puzzled and he says, to, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm sorry, I, why would we have our own airplane? He said, you know, I really despair of you people. Uh, all right, let me see if I can explain this. Okay, you live here in, in Ukraine. Um, let's say that you hear that they have toilet paper for sale in Tbilisi. Brilliant, brilliant. Just want to go back to your uh, your 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 time in yeah. in Warsaw. I mean, what were your um, impressions of of the city when you first arrived? Well, as, you know, as you know, it was destroyed by the Germans with the Soviets' complicity. Not a stone left on top of it, uh, and they had done rebuilding um, the old town, um, but it was it was you know very gray and. Um, but, um, the, you know, again, the, the people uh, were so vibrant, um, even in the midst of the darkest days, you know, they, the Poles always had a style to them, uh, more so, I think, than, than some of the other Eastern European countries, um, a flair. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of, of uh, lot to do, a lot of food, but, you know, uh, there was plenty to drink. Um, and uh, anyway, it, it was uh, it was an interesting place. And it was, you know, it was intense. Uh, you know, you were in the middle of history. And so, it, uh, you know, I've, I've often said that the middle of 1981 to the middle of 1982 was the best year of my life um, because it was so intense. Um, and if you had dollars, you know, life wasn't bad at all. Um, and, you know, a, a good portion of the Polish populace had had dollars because of remittances from abroad, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, the black market, which was incredibly uh, vibrant, um, 
So, you know, there were, there were markets, there were always markets where you could buy anything, uh, caviar or, you know, if you wanted an egg, it was, uh, you'd have, you paid 10 cents. The official exchange rate in, um, in 81, I think was 30 Zwati to the dollar. And the black market rate was 700, um, which was, you know, great, except there was nothing you could buy with Swati. So it you know, didn't really matter. And yeah, was it uh, the PVEX shops or yeah, something yeah, that was the hard yeah. currency shops? Right. And they were, um, but also the, the, there were free markets around, you know, the, the Poles had this kind of, uh, the Hungarians called it goulash communism. Uh, Poles had a sort of, um, uh, proto free market um, system. Uh, so uh, farmers were were you know allowed to sell stuff for for hard currency or at least quietly allowed. Um, and you know the <coughs> the flower growers uh, were you know they were they were actually the source of most of the hard currency. I never quite you know it was a covering economics. I always wanted to get to the bottom of that, but I never never could quite figure out why they why they did so well, but you always had flowers. Um, yeah. Um, did you ever feel that you were under surveillance when you were there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had bad times. Uh, I had, uh, uh, got, uh, pushed around by a couple of thugs in the, uh, elevator in my, in my office slash apartment building, you know, not nothing serious. I got, stopped several times, uh, while driving, you know, uh, in fact, after martial law, uh, journalists started, uh, if we were going someplace, uh, we would try to go in caravans, um, to protect each other. Um, so I, I, funny story one night we were coming back from some, there was an early curfew, but so we were coming back from dinner and I was following the UPI correspondence car and she gets pulled over by a auxiliary policeman. Um, and we've had other colleagues who then, you know, like were taken away for, you know, hours. So I got out and uh, went up to these guys and it, it was actually a sobriety checkpoint. And so, um, they said, okay, you know, blow in this, uh, in this, uh, you know, this, this bag. So they hand me this plastic, uh, rubber like bag that's, you know, you see anywhere, um, except for sobriety, except it didn't have the little glass, uh, ampule, uh, on it that would turn color if you had alcohol in your system. And so I just looked at it and I, and the guys just said, you know, blow. So I blow <laughs> And I just blow into this thing, and then he takes it and squeezes it under his nose. That was his sobriety test. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and you know, of course, we were uh, surveyed the whole time. Uh, you know, I was—I I used to walk everywhere, and I was walking over to the U.S. Embassy to interview a political officer one day, and and I got into his office, and he said, "You know, you, you're going to kill these guys." <laughs> and, he pointed to these two you know, older, you know, not great shape because, uh, you know, the, anyway, uh, uh, undercover cops, you know, sort of uh, up against a, a, a lamppost trying to catch their breath because um, I walked so fast. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, no, it was there all the time. And, and 
you know, that's, it really informs the, informed the way I operated because I knew that if I, you know, especially in the martial law, if I went and interviewed some underground figure, um, they would, uh, I would be jeopardizing. So, uh, I was very, very careful about who I talked to and, and how I talked. And that, by the way, is how I met, uh, father, uh, Yerji, uh, um, and, Oh wow! In March of of eighty two, um, uh, his his uh, church was a center for uh, collecting uh, Red Cross packages and other things for the families of the detained. You know, they they arrested thousands of people, and they were <clears throat> anyway. So I didn't know him at the time. But I knew his, that's his church was doing that. So I and there wasn't a lot else we could do. So I went to his church and um, and I met him. I didn't know who he was, uh, but he was this you know gaunt guy with just burning eyes and this really shabby cassock. And uh, after a little while, he invited me upstairs to a you know a room. And on the, there was a huge uh, easel, and on the uh, covered with a with a sheet. And he pulled the um, the sheet down, and there were the uh, the locations of all the detention centers um, in, in Poland, um, which they were keeping track of. Anyway, um, I would go there to the church because you weren't observed when you were in the church. And he would he was he was collecting and distributing uh, underground literature, and so um, which he kept in a bag uh, hung outside his window in case you know anybody came in he could you know drop it. Anyway, so he um, that's where I got all of my um, my underground publications. There are a lot of them, um, and yeah. So I was I was uh, I was gone by the time he. He was killed, which, and he became much more uh, outspoken and um, public um, in the in the in the following years. Um, he even officiated at the marriage of a American journalist and a and a, and a Polish woman. Um, so he had, he had gotten a little more, um, yeah, like I say, public. Um, but he was a remarkable, remarkable man. Yes, he 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 was, and I'm really pleased that you you know you shared a bit of a a, a portrait of him as as you found him in 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 the early eighties. Um, how I mean, it, meeting people like um like him, how did you you know shake off your SB type? Well, as I said, for the church, you couldn't. Um, uh, and and by the way, I you know people who thought they did. I think were the most dangerous of my colleagues. And I don't mention any names, but there was one guy who, you know, was always bragging about his uh, his contacts with the uh, with the underground. And then it turned out that his uh, his, his driver was uh, his driver's brother was SB. Um, and you know, God knows how many people he burned. So I would go to the church. No one knew who I was meeting in the church. Um, you know, they did, they wouldn't follow you in there. Um, and again, really, I you know, there were people who I talked to who who were um, 
affiliated with the underground, people who hadn't, uh, you know, weren't on, on the run. Um, and, you know, after a while, they, you know, that was, uh, I'd say after about six months, the people who were released, you know, they, they were okay to talk to me. Um, but, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, there were great people. Like, there was a guy, uh, uh, an absolute saint. His name was uh, Darius uh, Ficus. He was a well-known editor. And um, he, a lot of, uh, a lot of the creativity and the resistance in Poland after martial law was, was poured into the, um, into the underground press. And, uh, and Ficus did work with, with the underground press, but he had his own, he had an above ground press. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but he became somehow the, and this is what made Poland so great. He became editor of a, of a, of a publication called the blind cooperativist. Um, and it was basically an, an association of, of blind people who had been taught some trade like broom weaving or something. Um, and he, you know, and it had, he had this monthly publication um, and it always contained some kind of, you know, uh, b- badly disguised political commentary, you know, couched in historical terms or whatever. Um, and, and then, you know, there was the, the Catholic uh, papers and Tigodnik Poshekny down in Krakow, um, uh, Turovich, uh, the, the editor. Um, anyway, so, you know, there, there were, there were plenty of people. So since we're in, uh, we've talked about this, I'd, I'd like to you know, share my, my, uh, uh, horseback theory of what the difference was between 1981 and 1989. Um, it was the underground press. Um, they, um, it was remarkable because they didn't just print diatribes against the government. They didn't just call for demonstrations. They, they, they published uh, explanations on how a capitalist economy works. What's a stock market do? The difference between the American and the French presidential systems. Uh, and because they were forbidden, everybody read them. So my theory is that by 1989, the, the, the people of Poland were the most civically educated folks in Eastern Europe, um, maybe in Europe. Um, and so they were far more ready, far readier to um, navigate the complexities of trying to square that circle that I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, towards the beginning of this, of this conversation. Um, and it was Adam Michnik, uh, played a huge role in that, you know, then went on to, uh, create this publishing giant Gazette of Aborcha. Um, there, you know, anyway, they, they, they did remarkable things and, um, and I don't think it's ever quite gotten the, um, the the credit it gets. And I also, by the way, don't think Poland has ever gotten the credit it deserves for what happened in 1989. Believe me, at the, in January of 1989, if you had asked any poll or anybody who'd ever worked there, you know, if the polls could uh, you know, somehow 
square that circle and take power and take it responsibly, not go around arresting everybody. You know, I, you wouldn't have found many people who thought that. They, they surprised themselves. And if they hadn't, if they had screwed it up, if they had, uh, you know, taken power in September and immediately tried to, you know, change things and put their jailers in jail, the Berlin Wall would, would, would have been up for a lot longer. Um, and I think it's a real shame that they've never, they've never gotten the credit. They've never, I don't think, given themselves the credit. And I think a lot of what you're seeing today with their, the, the current regime is, is, uh, is a, a willful rejection of, of that history. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right about Poland. I mean, there's all the focus on the fall of the Berlin wall as the, you know, the, the end of, of communism in, in Eastern Europe, but without that touch paper, that solidarity set off in, in 1980, um, you know, none of that really, you know, probably would have, would have happened and and the the free elections in Poland are almost hardly mentioned in some mm-hmm. of the descriptions of 1989 yeah and by the way um you know when those elections were held was it just after Tiananmen Square no same day June 4th same day so i've actually written a couple of pieces called the other june 4th um Khomeini died that day too, so or was buried that day. So there was, you know. Anyway, they, it didn't make, you know, it may have made the front page of the New York Times, but it was buried. Um, and if it, you know, hadn't been for Tiananmen, I think. You know, but you know, by the same token, it may have changed the dynamics inside Eastern Europe. Yeah, but um, but yeah, no, and um, yeah, and it wasn't, you know. Yes, they they. they they lit the fuse, the torch paper, but but they didn't then blow themselves up. Um, and that to me was the, you know, all of the, the cliches, you know, the poles uh, make great fighter pilots and lousy bomber crews. You know, if you get four poles on a couch, you'll get five political parties, all, all of that stuff. You know, and they just, they completely rejected those cliches. And, and, and then, you know, the, the economic, reforms that Balcerovich um, put in place, um, which squared the circle the hard way. Um, but, you know, that, and they, you know, people put up with it for a long, long time. And it, 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 it you know, it changed Europe. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I did have just one, one other, one other question. Um, how, how did you hear about the imposition of martial law and where were you? Well, as I said, we were, um, we made uh, Valencia man of the year and I had, uh, my photographer, Rudy Fry was with me and, um, we were in, in, uh, Gdansk, uh, attending the last, the last meeting of solidarity. Uh, and it was pure chaos. Um, there were, uh, you know, everybody was yelling, uh, Valenza was just, you know, off on the, in the, to the side, holding his head, shaking his head. Um, and then during the, um, 
during the meeting, probably around nine o'clock or so, um, reports started to come in that there were, you know, military movements, uh, AP armored personnel carriers, you know, on the road from Warsaw, you know, and, but everybody had gotten kind of used to these rumors before. Uh, there'd been a, a, a rumors of a coup a few weeks earlier when there was a strike of fire, uh, firemen, students and Warsaw. Anyway, um, and so, you know, 10 o'clock or so, the thing breaks up. And I go back to my, uh, my motel and um, set the alarm because at uh, 5.30 or 6 o'clock, my photographer, my translator, and I were going to drive um, to Valencia's hometown because uh, he had agreed to let us take pictures of him in his home village by you know, the place where he grew up, you know, typical Time magazine sort of thing. And um, <clears throat> at 5.30, there's a knock on my door, and it's Rudy, my photographer. And, you know, we all had those little uh, Sony shortwave radios, uh, you know, size of a paperback novel. And he and we always the first thing you did every every day was turn it on when you when you got up and whenever you could. And that's how we found out that martial law had been declared. Um, and um, but we 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 uh, before we went to went to bed, I tried to make a phone call and um, all the lines were dead. But that wasn't unusual because this was a crummy hotel motel. And so I was literally under the front desk of the, you know, the reception desk and you know, trying to see if there was a, if one of the wires had come loose again. Um, but that they had cut off all, um, all communication. And so the next day uh, we ran around um, and took photos and uh, tried to talk to as many people as possible. And then we were, there was an announcement that all foreigners had to be back in Warsaw by six o'clock or something. And so um, we, uh, I wrote as much as I could and took photographs of it. Um, and then we took those photos and the photos that Rudy took of the first days of martial law um, and gave them to a young guy who had been sent in to be our photo assistant. And they had, they still, the ferries to Stockholm were still running from Gdansk. And we got, and I didn't want this kid in, you know, in there anyway, cause he, I don't think he'd ever been out of the U S before. So <laughs> we put him on, we put him on the first ferry, um, with, uh, uh, with, with, with the film, you know, as a tourist and, uh, cause it wasn't that mean, it was just a few roles. And so that's how, you know, and then we went back to Warsaw and the whole way down the, you know, the, the, the whole drive, it was all, you know, the latest announcements from Verona, um, the marshal. And were there many checkpoints you were having to go through on the well, way down? Not or? that many because there was nobody on the road and, and, and there were just tanks and APCs everywhere. Um, and, uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the most uh, depressing three hours of you know, four hours, whatever it was. If you like what you're hearing, sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com. 
And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information